21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. If you're not moving, you're dead. That's always how I've seen it. In a moment, I had that taken away from me. trying to do something called the Horseshoe Traverse in Rogers Pass. Basically, it's a link up of 14 peaks. And you're either going along a series of ridges or you're moving across glacier. Really, really big mountain terrain. And as we're going up the Salser Tower, we were maybe two-thirds of the way up. And I felt this rock pull out on me. I thought instantly, but I was dead. I felt myself start tumbling backwards. I get this very clear image of the mountains flipped upside down. Hi, everyone. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series, and I want to thank you for listening to any episode that you can. The whole idea behind this podcast is to share stories from the world of education and beyond of people who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life through their work. In each episode, I set out to deconstruct the ways in which my guests have come to better understand themselves and the strategies that they have developed to perform at peak levels in their chosen field of work. Whether it be writing, speaking, creating, or competing in elite sport, Many of my guests have accomplished some amazing things in life. Today's episode is part two of a two-part series devoted to sharing the inspiring journey of professional endurance athlete Adam Campbell. Although this was originally going to be just one episode, there was so much depth to our conversation in part one that I literally lost track of time. I had scheduled in approximately 45 minutes for our podcast, but before I knew it, I was asking Adam if we could do a part two. Simply put, I didn't want to rush through interviewing him. Um, I really wanted to to dive into his story and learn as much as I can. So, So this is the reason for part two. In part one, you learned that Adam spent the first 17 years of his life growing up on the beaches of Nigeria. Physical activity, movement, and outdoor pursuits had been ingrained in him from an early age. But it wasn't until going to boarding school at Trinity College in Ontario, Canada, for his last couple years of high school, that he found a deep love and passion for more endurance-based movement pursuits. This ultimately led to Adam becoming a professional endurance athlete, competing in multiple fields of endurance sport, before finding a special niche in different types of mountain and trail running. In part two, we really dive into Adam's journey of recovery 
from a near-death fall he had experienced as he and two close friends took on the challenge of completing the grueling Horseshoe Traverse, which consists of 14 different mountain peaks in Rogers Pass. Adam's near-death experience not only changed his perspective on life, but allowed him to look at his accomplishments and his profession through a completely different lens. We dig into his story of recovery, what he learned about himself and others, and his ultimate return to competitive endurance running, which took place nearly a year after his accident, as he amazingly finished one of the hardest ultramarathons there is, the Hard Rock 100 Mile Endurance Run. Adam also shares the experience of giving his first TED Talk soon after his accident and how his very raw and honest talk required great vulnerability to speak his truth. Adam has inspired countless people around the world through his passions and his talks. I really do hope you enjoy part two of this two-part series and share this episode with those who you feel will benefit from hearing it. Without further ado, part two with the inspiring Adam Campbell. Okay, Adam, so welcome back. It's part two a week later. One week ago, I was in Germany, and now I'm back at my home in the Middle East. So uh, thanks for being on part two. Yeah, thanks. And as I was just telling you, uh, one week ago, I uh, was leaving a simple life, and then in the past week, we got a puppy. So, you know, things have You've added, added a new dynamic, yeah, and, <laughs> which is it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And and that will keep you, I guess, uh, wake you up even earlier than normal probably. Well, it's funny. I'm actually not a morning – despite doing what I do, I'm really not a morning person by nature. Uh, so, yeah, I, I maybe have to become one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so to give people just – even though they heard a little bit in the uh, introduction of part two, it was a really interesting part one because one of the things that kind of um, – not surprised me, but really I was drawn to was the fact that you are a third culture kid and that you yeah. grew, grew up in Nigeria for 17 years. So we kind of discussed what it was like growing up and the role of physical activity in your life and then how your parents sent you to Trinity College boarding school. And from there, um, sorry about the, the bleep, the email bleep. I'm going to cut the email right now, but from Trinity College, um, I guess at Trinity College, you really learned about um, the love of outdoor pursuits such as Nordic skiing and cross-country running. And then that from there, we kind of transitioned into um, you meeting Simon Whitfield, which I didn't tell you in podcast number one, that's my wife's second cousin. Simon, oh, yeah, wow, that's a tiny, oh, wow, yeah, that's a really but small she's never actually met him in person, but um, yeah, he's he's part of the family, so we hope to meet him one day. But oh, that's um, awesome. yeah, cool. Um, so your time with Simon, living with Simon, and really being mentored by him and learning from him, which led to your um, kind of the the competing, the professional endurance uh, competing side uh, of your your life, and then we led into your accident and. To just reframe the accident, you were, you were with Dakota Jones and Nick Elson, right? Yeah, correct. Who were right. elite. In Rogers Pass, British Columbia. Yeah. Right. Selkirk Mountains, is that specifically yeah. where it Yeah, happened? that's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then we talked about your recovery and the fact that um, you, you were surrounded by, by love, really, your family, uh, a sense of belonging. And we've, you know, in our discussion, you felt that that really contributed to your recovery. 
Yeah, no, it absolutely did for sure. No, that having that, that energy around me was, was really critical to things. And it just gave me a deep appreciation for what I had. Cause I think, you know, when you, you go through one of those traumas, um, it's very easy to focus on the things you've lost. Yeah. Uh, you know, which can, and it's, it's understandable that that happens, you know, your life's being really taken for a ride and to suddenly have, um, something to be thankful for and to look for something to be thankful for and to really focus on that instead makes a really big difference. Yeah. Were, uh, were you always a person that was, you know, kind of was showed a lot of gratitude or, or held a lot of gratitude for things and was very positive or did just, did this kind of flip you a little bit? So I would say that, yes, I've always been quite optimistic. Um, I think that, I think that attitude is like contributed a lot of my success with ultra running as well. I think you have to be optimistic because, you know, you're putting yourself in difficult situations and, um, it, and basically the way that I like to look at really long distance events is it's, it's the people who manage the low points, the best who end up doing well. Yeah. Uh, everybody, everybody's going to experience one at some point in a race. Um, especially the longer the race gets longer. I mean, sometimes those can be two or three hours. So you have to have a bit of a, optimistic outlook to, to get you through those stages. Yeah. And is, is that optimistic outlook based on experience? You've been there before you you've done it before you, or is there a, I guess, is there a framework that you operate from within your lowest points of, of competing in those long races? Yeah. So I, I, I do think that, um, you know, having a big base of experience makes a really big difference and for sure having put yourself in those situations and training and, in previous races, the way I like to, to frame it is essentially it's like it, it, it's a little cheesy, but it's like a video game. And you're, you know, when you're training and out um, exploring and racing, you know, you're, you're developing a bag of tricks and you're essentially filling your little pouch with whatever little talismans you have. Yeah. And when you get to those doors or those most challenging moments, you can reach into that bag of tricks. You may never use them. But at least you know that they're there and you can pull them out when you need to. So what are some of those? Is it self-talk? Is it is it um, breathing? Is it just being mindful and, and present in the moment? Like what are some of those those tricks? So it's funny. I mean, they, they change depending on the circumstance. Different circumstances call for different things. But for the most part, yes. Uh, just sort of focusing on the process of what you're doing, not getting caught up in uh, – worrying about your, your, your position, you know, like external factors, just trying to control as much as you can. So, um, it, it's actually quite simple. You know, it's, are you eating? Are you moving forward? You know, when the races get really long, sometimes just moving forward is, is a positive and just telling yourself it's a positive. Um, and then setting little goals for yourself and rewarding yourself for the goals. It's, it's funny when I race, I actually keep a little, um, bag of gummy bears in yeah. one of my pockets and whenever I get to like a milestone in the in the race, so whether it's 5K or 10K or 20K, or I just work through a bad patch, I sort of I'm, I'm like a puppy, I guess. Mm -hmm. I reward myself with a little treat. <laughs> um, I mean, just a gummy bear. <laughs> it's not that fancy, but uh, I've, I've come to associate that with like a positive outlook on something, um, and it helps me get through those stages. And then other times too, it's just making sure I'm managing myself. So you know, if my if I feel like a blister coming on, I, I stop and manage it right away. Because I find that taking 10 seconds or five seconds early on can save you minutes or hours later on in the race. Yeah. Do you know, uh, have you heard of Coach John Wooden? Uh, I haven't. No. So he won, um, he was the famous UCLA basketball coach uh, back oh, yeah, in the sorry, yeah. I know who that is. And yeah, he yeah, won yeah. eight straight titles. And, and what he did, what's amazing is like he created this sense of family. He was like a father figure and 
He was harsh on his athletes, but very loving. Uh, but he broke everything down to the micro details, right? So he actually had them train on how to put on their socks properly to avoid blisters. Yeah. So when they were going into an intense two-hour practice session, he would be that explicit with them that if you don't put on your socks properly, you're going to get a blister. And if you get a blister, you're useless to us. So it's like yeah. the, these ideas <laughs> of like so, taking care of yourself. It's funny though, because I think that's I think that's valid to a point, but then there's a point when that stuff can actually hinder somebody. Yeah. When they become so dependent on those habits, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're put in a situation where you can't rely on those habits. Mm-hmm. Um, can you still perform? Um, because that to me is where the racing actually gets interesting, especially for these long distance races or anything in the mountains. You can plan so far, but then the weather might you know, come and play, uh, play a role on you. You might get a, a, a rock in your shoe. You, for whatever reason, they might not have the nutrition you're used to yeah. and how adaptable you are also becomes very important. And it's the same thing with these games, like a basketball game. You could have a game plan and like stick to it as much as you want. But if the, if that game plan stops working or the other team is able to shut you down, you yeah. have to be able to adapt uh, to whatever those new situ- that new situation is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, one thing I just want to uh, talk about uh, just before I get into my next question about your rehabilitation is is that idea of the power of visualization and imagery. And a lot of professional athletes are using uh, visualization now. And <clears throat> a lot of peak performance work around peak performance suggests that instead of only visualizing success and what success looks like, that's not the reality of it. You know, you have to also visualize what's going to happen in those moment where, moments where the weather changes or you run into yes. some extreme obstacles. So you actually visualize these darker moments and, and your ability to recover from those moments as part of the visualization. Did you do any visualization to prepare for races? Yeah, absolutely. And that's interesting you say that because I, I find so many people and it goes back to having that plan. They have one plan and their plan is what the perfect day looks like. The perfect day takes care of itself. Yeah. It's you're, you're, you're planning and you're training and you're preparing for the days when things aren't going perfectly. And my, my visualization did largely focus around that. It's like, what is it going to feel like? And I kind of just, you know, would tell myself like, you know, uh, there's a classic line from a Canadian movie called FUBAR and it's like embrace the suck, yeah. you know, and it's like <laughs> when you get down to the, like the sucking part of the races, which yeah. happen, uh, can you just embrace those moments and just convince yourself that that's why you're there is what you signed up for. That's like the challenge that you put yourself in front of. And it's the same thing in the mountains when all of a sudden you're faced with like a difficult situation, you're scared, you're cold. It's, mm-hmm. you know, um, what can you do to, to manage that? And sometimes the right thing is to step away. Yeah. You know, especially in mountains, like there's sometimes, you know, the right call is to is to bail and to be okay with it, not be so tied up to the outcome yeah. that you, you know, you push through into dangerous situations. And just sort of to go back to the initial question, all this really helped with my recovery in a big way. So having a positive outlook on things, I think really did help me quite a lot. But then also the ability to uh, to just sort of sit there with the pain that I was feeling and to convince myself that it was just part of the, the the process and then to reward any small successes that came out of it, I think were really, really critical in the, in the overall recovery because, um, you know, recovery is never linear. You're never just improving. You know, you'll, you'll improve and one day I might, I might be able to take five steps and then the next morning, and maybe that was a little bit too much. And so the next morning I'd wake up, I can only do two steps. Mm-hmm. 
And I'd have to reward myself and be like, well, it's okay. You're still making, you still took two steps today. Even though it was less than yesterday, that doesn't really matter. Your body needs this time to recover. And the other thing I did, uh, during the recovery, um, is I, I was really fortunate to actually have this woman come in and we did uh, some pain meditation. Oh, good. Yeah. And it was just, it was just talking to the various parts of my body that and it like, you know, it sounded a little cheesy to me at first, mm-hmm. but I would just sit in a really comfortable chair and just talk to the parts of my body that were in pain yeah. and basically just say, it's okay. Like, you know, we know that you're healing, you know, that you're, um, you know, we know that you're struggling, but thank you for allowing us to do what we're doing. And that was actually really, really powerful for me. And I think made a a very big difference because I, I, you know, despite the fact that I was out pushing, I wasn't like, this was incredible, incredible discomfort. I mean, I broke my back, I broke my hip, I broke my ankle, but then I also responded really badly to the pain uh, medication I was on and the trauma and um, my entire digestive system shut down. Yeah. Caused incredible um, like intestinal and gastric distress. It was the worst pain that was actually the worst pain I've ever felt. Yeah, um, it was it was worse than any of the other trauma because for the for the physical trauma they can give you drugs. Yeah, to bring it down, but that uh, digestive pain they can't. And in, in fact, the the drugs that are helping your the rest of your body are the ones that are causing that stra- that yeah. that trauma. Um, and so that was incredibly painful for me. And the other thing that I, I didn't really think about prior to the accident is. Um, you know, I said that I'm somebody who uses his body to express himself, but it's also how I deal with my emotions to a large degree. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I'm in like one of the scariest moments of my life, the most painful moments of my life. And I don't have my emotional outlet right. because I don't have my body anymore. Yeah. And so, um, I had to learn new coping mechanisms to, to release that, that pain. And so I started sketching, uh, which is something I'd never done before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, looking back through the book, I mean, there's some pretty like, dark morbid looking thing but yeah. I, I needed to get it out of me <clears throat> is that something uh, that continued it did yeah it's it, yeah not not, not yeah. as much i i'm more of a writer and i've yeah. always been more of a writer and so I, I continue to write um but yeah no i i do i do continue to sketch and the other thing that was really cool about the sketching uh, is when i was finally released from the hospital um i've always moved through spaces you know that's how i've appreciated them is by moving through them and like feeling them and all of a sudden be forced to sit still and to look at those same spaces and sit there and draw them. You, yeah. you get a whole new appreciation. You look at them in a completely new way. And it's actually enhanced my mountain experience now because I feel that like, you know, like I can look at the lines in the mountains and actually find yeah, sort yeah. of new ways to go. And these are things I stare at on a daily basis yeah. and just suddenly looking at them in a slightly different way was really critical and it was really important. And I think that's like just, enhance my life in a big way yeah and and when you're describing your recovery my wife and i uh work on a lot of mindfulness and meditation and we have a a mindfulness podcast ourselves and and we started following the work of dr joe dispenza have you heard of dr joe dispenza he's a neuro he's a neuroscientist uh he was a chiropractor um, and it was, I guess it was about 20 or 30 years ago, maybe he was like a hardcore, this is when he was a chiropractor, he was a hardcore uh, cyclist. And mm-hmm. he got into a serious bike accident, was almost killed, had uh, severe damage to the to the spine. So yeah. he ended up like he broke the spine in multiple places. And he ended up in the hospital. And during his recovery, there was nothing he could do, except 
in being a, you know, being a chiropractor, he knew exactly the shape of each vertebrae. So he began to embrace this idea of meditation. And he thought like, screw it. The doctors are saying, I'm not even going to walk again, let alone ride again. So he decided to um, do this daily three-hour visualization. And what he imagined in his head was a 3D scan of his each vertebrae. And he actually visualized like almost like an electric probe going in and rebuilding every vertebrae. Yeah. And and he went through the whole the the whole spine, right? And suddenly, within two months, he was walking again, and then he started riding again. But it was that power of visualization, uh, and that using the brain to heal the body. And yeah. then he became like this well-known speaker. So a lot of I'll send you his links, but it's yeah, amazing. Awesome. It's it's all about the brain, uh, you know helping the body to recover but when you were you know i guess during your rehabilitation what time frame are we talking about are we talking four months six months three months i'm talking the really intense hardcore the most difficult part of it uh the the first the first uh, two months okay we're definitely the most difficult part for sure um yeah, the, fir the first two months were where the intense pain was, and I mean, I was basically wheelchair bound for that whole time. Um, but then the swelling started to go down, and um, it's funny because you know, as that, as that, as like the major trauma started to leave my body, or start, it started to be able to manage it a little bit better, you start discovering all the little injuries that they didn't pick up and aren't as important. But so, for instance, my my ankle had a, a bunch of small fractures in it. Uh, which ironically is what gives me the most grief now. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like despite all the, the other major injuries, it's because it was on a joint, and joints yeah. can be a little bit more difficult to, to mobilize. And obviously, you know, your ankle uh, plays a very big part of your running stride. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's arguably what gives me the most pain, uh, most grief now. Yeah. And w what within yourself drove you to make the decision? I want to jump over to the Hard Rock Hundred Mile Endurance Run, and um, just talk about like. When, at what point, how many months after your accident did you say to yourself, you know what, maybe I can do this? Yeah, so that's a bit of a funny story. So to give people some context, the Hard Rock 100, it's, it's arguably the hardest 100-mile race, at least in North America, if not the world. Uh, and So 100 miles is 160 kilometers. Yeah. And you're at an average elevation of 11,000 feet, which is over 3,000 meters of, well, it's, it's almost 4,000 meters of altitude. Yeah. Um, and you go up uh, to almost 5,000 meters of altitude. The whole thing is all, is basically off trail. It's really, really rugged mountain terrain. Where is it? And it's in thought, the U.S. Uh, it's in sorry, it's in the U.S. It's in Silverton, Colorado. Okay, okay. Yeah, and it's actually it's a really beautiful logical course too because you run through three towns. It's a big loop. Um, so it's there's something like just aesthetically quite pleasing about it as well. It's mm -hmm. uh, you know you're not just running out and back just to make up a, like an arbitrary number. Um, and it's, it's got about, uh, it's got over 10,000 meters. So over 30,000 feet of vertical gain in it. So it, it's a really, really difficult, difficult race. And you're running up and down, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so I've, I've raced this race twice in the past, uh, prior to that year. And I'd finished third at the race twice. And it's, um, it's one of the races that be sort of one, I was really drawn to it, but it, it helped me get known on the international stage because mm -hmm. to, to have a podium finish of that race is, is quite a big deal. Yeah. And, um, just because it, and it's, it's incredibly beautiful as well. 
but it, and they limit the field size to 140 people. Um, it's due to the, the challenging nature, and you ha- everybody who's there has a lot of experience. So to get into the race, everybody other than the previous year's winner, um, there's a lottery to get into it. Oh, wow. So for these 140 spots, there's over over 2,000 applicants. Now, because I finished on the podium in the past, I had more tickets in the lottery, but no guaranteed entry. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I was actually in the hospital bed, when I was still in the hospital, the lottery for Hard Rock came up. And for whatever reason, and I, I think I know the reason, um, I registered. So I couldn't walk. I was in the hospital bed. And I was like, well, I might as well put my name in for this. And <laughs> it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I like just I signed up for the race. Were you all doped I, up on morphine at the time? Or? Yeah, no, that's entirely <laughs> it. Yeah. I think I was largely doped on morphine. But I think some of it, too, was just um, – because I was so traumatized at everything that was going on, I was actually, it's something I would have done if I hadn't been injured. Mm-hmm. And I think I was just looking for anything to like, to be normal and, um, you know, like out of habit basically. And so I did that one little thing. Um, and I also, I guess in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I don't really know what my outcome is going to be, you know, back to that positive thing. Um, so you, I can't race if I don't apply. But at the same time, you know, if I do get in and I'm not able to do anything, well, then I just drop out. Like, there's not, there's no real risk other than it's a little bit silly. Um, so three months later, four months later, I'd, I started to recover a little bit. And um, Laura and I had actually gone out into the mountains that day. It was like one of my first days back out in the mountains. And in the mountains around Canada, there's no cell signal. A lot of the area around where we live, so you, you quickly leave cell signal. So we, we went out, had a, had a nice day. And as we're driving back in, I'm like, my, my cell phone just starts like going off with all these alerts. I'm like, well, that's what the heck's going on? And um, people watch these lotteries, and I guess my name got pulled into the lottery. And I was like, oh, my God, Adam, you're in the hard rock. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> it was kind of like, it was a little bit like, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> uh, and But I still had, you know, over six months at that point to recover. And I was like, well, you know, I was out in the mountains today. Let's see what we can do. Let's try to prepare for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so slowly, and for, so the one thing I, I had to learn how to use my body again. So I, w- I was a master of my old body, and I knew what my old body could do, but I didn't know what my new body was capable of. So I'd been self-coached for a number of years, but I went out and got a coach, largely just to help me have an external frame of reference, right. because I didn't want to use my old body as as the barometer because I was never going to be at that level. Like that would just be unrealistic and I'd probably get injured again. So I I got a coach just to be able to help me figure out what the bare minimum was I could do to get me to the start line healthy and uninjured and also um, improving. Mm -hmm. And so over the next six months, we slowly worked at it. And um, interestingly about two months out, and I think maybe this is just, you know, back to that positive mind frame and then maybe also a little bit of self delusion, which I think a lot of elite athletes have to have. Um, I was like, Oh, I'm actually like feeling quite fit here. And, you know, and it wasn't entirely um, subjective. I did have objective, objective measures, you Mm -hmm. know, like I, I had barometers in the mountains around me and things that I'd used to measure myself. And I was getting, you know, I was recovering quite quickly and I was getting back to more or less the levels I was at before. I just didn't have the volume or the base. And I knew that my structure of my body was probably going to break down at some point, but I didn't know where that would be. I just out of curiosity, had your weight dropped or was it, was it the same? uh, um, We've got this little guy trying to say hello. Oh, there he is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this, is, this is his first time on Skype. There you go. Hey, dude. Go, <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
he's, uh, he's been chewing at my feet. <laughs> um, so I hadn't really, I had not lost any, I hadn't lost any weight, but I lost muscle mass at that point, uh, for sure. But the biggest thing is that I, you know, I just didn't, you need like a big aerobic foundation. And even though I had, a, I had years of that in my body, I didn't have like the specific training for that race um, that really like built up your resiliency. Right. And so, um, yeah, so, but yeah, so I was able to put in the time over, over the, the following months. And then all of a sudden I started to develop a little bit of an ego, um, to be honest, through my recovery, I was, I was quite conscious of my ego and the fact that a, a, a large part of why I had my accident was quite ego based. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd set a very, very high standard. I was, I was doing something that was a little bit cutting edge and pushing my limits and all that's ego driven. If I'm being yeah. totally honest, like, yeah. you know, and results in, in any event are ego driven. And, uh, I was quite aware of the fact that the ego got me in trouble, but as I started to train and prepare that same ego started to come back again. <laughs> Um, but that was a positive thing because that was your old <laughs> self returning in a way. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it was. Yeah, perhaps, yeah. um, you know, and, and I don't think, I don't think all egos is bad. I think ego like, you know, forces you to, to set goals for yourself and to challenge yourself yeah. for sure. I think yeah. it, it does. It, it can be a positive as when your ego becomes your only reason for doing things. That yeah. It's a negative. Yeah. Um, but what- you know, I was very, I was very humbled through my recovery. You know, I was humbled by, uh, my limitations right what what role did fear play was there was fear present as you approached the race so yeah so there was but the the fear the fear was a funny thing the fear was more i i put myself out there i told people i was going to try this thing and the fear was more what if i am not able to do it do it as in complete it or make it to the start line yeah well either one yeah Either, you know, the, yeah. it, both of those, um, both of those played a role. You know, what if a fear of fear of getting injured again? Yeah. Uh, there's fear of, um, of doing too much fear of fear of myself too. It's like, why, why do I feel the need to put these huge challenges in front of myself? Why did I need to like choose the hardest hundred miler in the world? Was it the same why- fear that you had, you had encountered in obviously in, in prior races before your accident, there's always that element of, uncertainty and i think with endurance athletes there's the the uncertainty is what drives you you know like the uncertainty of not knowing the outcome and how hard it's going to be and how you're going to perform but was the fear you had had experienced before maybe you didn't experience fear before but was the fear different or was it the same kind of fear so no it was it was different so um, you're, you're right. You're, you're absolutely on point with the fear that drives a lot of endurance athletes and the fear. Um, and also for me, a lot of the fear was not, not performing to my, my potential in races, um, not doing enough for, for whatever reason. Whereas this time the fear was actually, am I actually physically able to do this? And okay. which isn't something I'd felt yeah. in a long time. You know, I, you know, I've raced Ironmans, I've finished on podium at these really hard races, I like, climb and ski mountain air. So, fear of what my body was capable of doing mm-hmm. wasn't really um wasn't really a, a consideration this time it was have i pushed it too far am i a- going to be asking too much of my body this time um, and then as i say it was fear of myself as well it's like why do i feel the need to put why couldn't i have just gone out and run a half marathon <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. try to do a good job at that yeah. why did i feel the need to go and try to do this hardest race out there 
But I think yeah. that that speaks volumes about um, who you had become all those years growing up in Nigeria, physical activity, you know, you're you're competing on the world stage. I mean, it's in you. It's never going to be not a part of you, you know? Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's just something that will always be in you. And I, I think that when, and when I think of In Constant Motion, I listened to, the, I watched it a couple times. I, I let my family watch it. By the way, my wife listened to part one. She loved it. Um, awesome. My boys watched your, your movie. I'm going to share your um, In Constant Motion with the, uh, the teachers in the workshops that I go to because there's a real important message there. And I think that when you, when you set out to do the race, you had gratitude for being able to do it, you know, after your injury, the hard rock hundred mile endurance run. Like, I think you were grateful to be able to, to step up to that start line. But then the, the, the idea of you, you truly set out to enjoy the process of being in the race and you didn't want outcome or position or ranking to enter your mind. However, it did. And I, I think, you know, you talked about that in constant motion, like yeah. then suddenly it's like, oh shit, maybe I can finish in the top 20 or top 10 or Hey, maybe I can do the top five, whatever. But I yeah. think how, I guess I want to talk uh, you to talk about your mindset in that moment. Cause it seemed like at the start of the race, you were like, you were going along, you were humming along and then you got caught up in this thinking about position ranking and outcome all of a sudden, which you didn't want to do. And I guess at that point, how did that mindset um, become an obstacle or was it an obstacle or not an obstacle or? Yeah, no, it, it was a big obstacle, but I actually think it was quite important as well to, to face that in retrospect. Um, it, it was, it was a very big obstacle. So when I, you know, it's, you're, you're right. When I, uh, prior to the race, I was telling myself that I'm just going to try to focus on enjoying this experience and try to just work my way through it. Um, but as I walked up to the start line and I started to see all the familiar faces, people I've competed against for years, you know, like I see myself with the Killian Jarnays and the, you know, Mike Foots and these people who are the top of the sport. I mean, that's, those are like, those are the people I race against. And so when the gun went off, can I, I, think can I, I just, just time, started, can I just I, time you out there? Because I want to ask yeah. you how it felt. I assume everybody was so so grateful to have you in the race like how were they oh, yeah. before the race how were you received can you talk about that yeah um it was it was incredible walking me on the start line of hard rock having all like my fellow competitors come out and uh you know, just thank me for being there and it is a big sense of community it's i mean it you know there's not that many people in the world who do this yeah. you know so you all each other and um Everybody there knew my story. And so it was, it was really great to have that connection and to have that celebration of body. And the other thing is, um, so Nick and Dakota, who were with me when I had my accident, were both there at the race with me as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, nice. Helped support me. Um, and it was also really powerful for them because, I mean, they, they quite literally thought they were watching their friend die. Mm-hmm. Like when they saw me falling off the mountain, they watched me fall and they were convinced that they were going to go down to retrieve a body. Um, and so they were sitting with that as well for 10 months because yeah. they couldn't, you know, they, they never really talked to anybody else about it. Uh, they were very respectful of my recovery, even though they're well-known athletes themselves, they never talked about what they experienced, uh, publicly anyway, perhaps they did with friends and family, but for Nick and Dakota to be able to talk, um, 
to each other, which they hadn't really been able to do since the accident. And they'd also be able to talk to me. I think it was cathartic for them as well. Yeah. And then also to see me physically able or at the start line, um, I think helped them know that I really was okay. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to get a message from somebody saying, yeah, I'm doing really well, but it's another to actually see somebody in person physically able to move. And that was really, I think that was quite powerful and important for them as well. Yeah. And I had cut you off a bit just because I wanted to kind of set the frame for before the race, but you were about to talk about when the, you know, when the start gun went off and you started. So yeah. just pick up from there. So Yeah. So the, when the gun went off, I think I just sort of went into a bit of autopilot and just took off with the leaders, uh, which is what I've always done. And, you know, the, the, these races don't start that fast, relatively speaking. Um, you know, you're going to be out for 24 or 30 hours. <laughs> so you're, you're not, you're not going out at a hundred meter sprint pace. And so for the first two hours, I could, I could stay with them. Um, but I mean, that was, that was above where my, my body was at for a 30 hour race, but for two hours I could stay with them and I really enjoyed it. And I was like, Oh, I'm back. And yeah. I'm here again. You know, this is exactly where I need to be. But then slowly, you know, like the, my lack of training, um, caught up to me and I, I watched the lead groups or run away from me. And that was really difficult because, um, and, and, but it also like really poetic in, in a strange way, because it, it literally was my former self running away from me. Mm-hmm. Like that was my former self and yeah. it, it just embodied that. Um, and so I really had to deal in the moment with my new experience. And I, I also think, uh, or my new reality, but I also think that um, I hadn't fully dealt with everything you know, you can only deal with so much. Mm-hmm. And I, I also, as my body started to recover, as I started to train and move again and get outside, um, you know, as I say, I think being a long distance athlete and a mountain athlete, you have to have a certain amount of denial and amnesia about how difficult these things are and where you you're actually at in order to keep going out and training. Like you're just used to discomfort. Yeah. Um, and so I think I, I kind of just adopted that mind frame. And was used to to being uncomfortable, and all of a sudden I was like, "Oh, this is this is actually where my new reality is," mm-hmm. and I and I just broke down crying in that moment, and and just I, I just started bawling, and I was walking and crying. And, wait, was uh, that the 80, sudden, 82 mile mark? No, no, no. This is at like the twelve mile. Oh, mark. Okay, okay. So <laughs> yeah, there yeah, was really, emotion really, early. early yeah, really early on. Yeah. Really early on. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. Twenty miles. It, it was a good thing. Yeah, yeah. it was really important. Um, and what happened is one of the top female runners in the world, a good friend of mine, Anna Frost from New Zealand, uh, ran up to me and she saw me crying as I was walking and she stopped and she just gave me a huge hug. And so we're out in this beautiful mountains and, you know, this, I'm getting a, a hug from her friend as I'm crying. And she's like, Adam, it's okay. And she just gave me, she was just the right person in the right place at the right time, the right moment. And she just gave me permission to let go of that, that ego essentially and uh, allow me to just enjoy the process again. And I did. And for the next um, 50 miles, so like 80K, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, and I started to move better. And I just, you know, I was just so appreciative of every step I took out there. Um, but then my body started to break down, which was sort of inevitable. Like my, I, I, my foot really started to hurt quite badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, my hip started to hurt a lot and, you know, I started to go into a really, really dark place. Um, basically asking myself, like, what, why are you doing this? Like, once again, that those same questions, like, why do you feel the need to push yourself so hard? Like, what, what are you doing out here? Like, this is really stupid. Um, but then I was, I was with Nick Elson and I was also actually getting a little bit mad at myself because 
Uh, by this point I couldn't run anymore. I was just walking. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and Nick has never moved so slowly in the mountains in his entire life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was feeling really guilty for making Nick, yeah. have to like, you know, this is at like two o'clock in the morning, in the Wilson mountains somewhere. And we're like just crawling along. And I'm like, why are you doing this to Nick? Like, why, yeah. why you know, why, why, why do you feel the need to do things to yourself? And so I was having these really strange, dark conversations with myself. And all these, these people um, were, were passing me like fellow competitors saying, Oh, great job. And in my mind, I'm like I'm not doing a great job. I'm doing a horrible job. This is I'm never, I don't want to be here <laughs> anymore. Um, but you know, you just take one step and another step, and all of a sudden, you know, that whole like just keep moving forward concept. And that's the that's I think the experience you talked about your low points because you said at the beginning of this pod, podcast that that endurance athletes are the the best endurance athletes are the ones that deal with the low points the best. And that yeah. was obviously a low point. And in, in constant motion, I think it was uh, mile 82, it was obvious that, that you were in physical agony and very emotional. Um, I guess you know which point I'm talking about, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And, yeah. and I, I think what, what I want to ask in that moment is, like, were you grieving the loss of your former competitive self? Were, was it crying with gratitude and happiness? Was it thankful to be alive was it uh, a combination of everything well it was, it was maybe a combination of everything but for the most part it was just i so it, you, you asked about the visualization and i hadn't i'd never actually been in that situation before i'd never i'd never had my body just not work yeah. and it just wasn't working and the other thing i hadn't really accounted for in my like my, my visualization ahead of time was just how easy it was going to be for me to drop out if I dropped out at mile 80 of hard rock, nobody's going to say, uh, you know, that that's kind of a crappy thing. It's like amazing. You, you made it 80 miles into hard rock. Yeah. Like that's, that's incredible. And, and they're, they'd be right. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they wouldn't be wrong. Um, and so every, and there's, there's aid stations. So you actually run through checkpoints every 10 to 15 miles throughout the race. So yeah. uh, 16 to 25 kilometers. Any, at any one of those points I could have dropped out. And I, I hadn't really accounted for the fact that uh, it would be it'd be easy to drop out. So every time I'd go into one, I'd have this little battle. It's like, should I just pull out here? Like, why do I need to keep going? And you know, it's warm. It's like it's comfortable here. You're off your feet, and yeah. nobody's going to care if you drop out. Um, except I would have cared a little bit. Yeah. But at the same time, like, why? Why do I care? Like, it's just you know, it's an arbitrary yeah. goal. Um, and so I, I think, it, but it was also just physical pain as well i was in a lot of physical pain at that point i said i thought i broke my foot it was just the i'd, I'd pinched some nerves in my foot just because my ankle wasn't moving properly mm-hmm. and so every step felt like i was getting stabbed yeah and i'm like am i doing long-term damage here like i don't want to be doing long-term damage to myself this is it's silly um yeah so there's there's but, but there was also there is also something about just being like about pain that makes you just truly present mm-hmm. like you are very much aware of every time you're in pain and it just draws you entirely to the moment so i couldn't disassociate whereas in previous long distance races there's times when it's important to actually just disassociate be like okay this sucks let's just go somewhere pleasant for a little bit yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and move forward and, and uh, we'll deal with it in a little bit do you think the med- um, meditation and so I was trying to do that do you think the pain meditation and the and your recovery um played a part in overcoming that moment 
Uh, no, I, I don't. I'd actually, so I, I, I'd actually ignored all those, yeah. all that stuff in that, in that very moment, I forgot about it. And I just tried to sit there. And one thing I did try to do is something I always try to do is just tell myself that, you know, I chose to be here. I chose to do this to myself. Um, I am in a beautiful area and as much as this sucks, like I do sort of enjoy this as well. And I do yeah. enjoy trying to move forward. And, um, yeah. And so that, and it, and it really just came down to at that point, it was just like, just keep taping one step. If you're moving forward, if you're moving forward, you're making progress, no matter how slow it is, you're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. That it was, it was such a cool, I mean, it's a 16 minute kind of mini doc of mini documentary of, of your experience that uh, encapsulates kind of so much of your life. But I think that as you finished and you, and you came in, I mean, one of the things to remember, I think you finished 31st, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. So keeping that into perspective is, um, is huge. I mean, I know it wasn't anywhere close to your third place finish from before, but when you finished, it was quite emotional. You, you kissed the rock that represented the, the race. And then you had all of this love and support around you. So I guess just talk about the last couple kilometers and how you felt and what it was like to cross the line and what emotions you were experiencing in that moment. Yeah. It's funny actually, as you mentioned that. So to, in order to finish the race, you actually have to kiss the rock, which is the finish line. Like every, every finisher does that. And I hadn't really thought about it, but it really is a sign of gratitude for what you just went through. Um, so it's kind of cool. I, it, thanks for bringing that up. Um, but yeah, no, so the last, the last couple of kilometers of the race, you, you essentially run down off the mountain and you cross, you cross a river. And then when you cross the river, it's more or less just uh, logging roads so dirt roads to the finish. So you're, you're done with field challenges. Once you cross the river, um, is it, once again, it's quite symbolic because you've run off the mountain and you're essentially on your way home. And at that point, it's the first time you've seen people in a long time because you, it's the first time you cross a road. And so there's a lot of people out cheering. So there, there's my coach was there and then Nick and Dakota were there. And then I had other supporters out as well. And they just walked with me to the finish line because, I, as I said, I wasn't able to run anymore. And there, you just feel this huge sense of relief because for the first time in like 29 hours, I actually knew I was going to be able to finish at that point. Up, up until I crossed that river at mile 98, you know, or 99 or so, basically two kilometers to go, I didn't actually know if I was going to be able to finish. Um, and that was the first time I did. And so we just had, it was just like a real celebration of what, um, you know, the last 29 hours had been, what the last 10 months had been. And you suddenly round this corner and you come to this town and Silverton is it, this tiny mining town. It doesn't have a paved street in it. It's a tiny little town, uh, but it's iconic in, um, in the mountain running world, uh, especially, but in any of the mountain North American mountain world, people know Silverton. And I'm walking down this, as I'm sort of walking into town, all my fellow competitors. So these other people who had been out for 30 hours themselves, 24 hours, you know, most of the thing, all you want to do is just go lie down and they all got up and came and cheered me across the finish line. And that was just so emotional for me. Um, experience that love and support from the community as I, and so I got to go up and kiss the rock and hug the race director. And it was just this huge sense of relief. Um, and you know, when I finally got to sit down, it was just relief at not being in pain anymore, but it pain, pain's a really funny thing because as I said, I was in like total agony 
for the for the previous 29 hours or um, you know for the previous 50 miles like 80 90 kilometers and all of a sudden though that pain seemed to go away so you know it was something that i'd built up in my mind to a certain degree as well yeah. and uh, i let go of it and that was really it was interesting um but i think i I caused some of my own pain as well. And I think it was my body and my mind trying to protect myself a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And when you, you know, I think of, I couldn't even imagine. I mean, the most I've done is I, last summer, my wife and I took on a challenge. We went back to Canada for the summer, which we love doing. Our boys have never lived in Canada. And the last few years, we've gone to Collingwood, Ontario. Yeah, I know Collingwood. Yeah, yeah. and they have the Ooh, north, wow. yeah, they yeah. have the north face run there in the summer. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And so we did a half um, marathon last year. You know, it was, I've done half marathons flat, but I yeah. thought, okay, I'm going to tackle this challenge. It was my 50th birthday. And I thought, hell, you know, and, and one of my friends who turned 53 days after me, we said, we're going to meet and we're going to do the 50 kilometer. And, but then oh, they, awesome. di they didn't, um, that was the first year they didn't run the 50. So we did 21. It was hilly. It was more than yeah. anything I've ever done, and I had experienced some pain, but I, I finished, and I remember how satisfying it was to finish, but um, I think it's just that idea that um, what I learned through that is that I hadn't even come close to training, because Saudi Arabia, where I live, it's all flat, yeah. you know, so it's it's kind of like that, you know, it's nothing compared to a 100 miler, but it's still that idea that everybody deals with pain differently in their in their own way and a lot of it is self-imposed both physical and emotional and that kind of when i think about the work you do and what did you take away from that experience suddenly because you're an in-house uh, in-house counsel for your your company right yeah correct were you doing the same job when you when you ran that race I was, yeah. yeah. No, I was still, I was still working. So I, um, so it was interesting. After my accident, I, I actually went back to work r relatively quickly, about two months later. Um, and one, once again, though, I think it was just to feel a sense of normalcy, just try to get back into a bit of a routine. But it was too early, and um, I was just completely disconnected when I was there, and I just, I, I really didn't care. Yeah. Uh, and you know, as in-house counsel, you you kind of have to care. You're dealing with a lot of minutia and yeah. things that are like. In the big scheme of things, not that important, but for your company's <laughs> well-being, it's important. Yeah. Um, but I, I just I was having a really hard time caring. And fortunately, they're a, an amazingly supportive uh, company. And uh, I, I said I need to take more time off. So I took an unpaid leave for another couple months uh, just to, to get back in it. But I, yeah, I slowly built back. Um, and by that point, I was back working again. But what, what was your biggest, like, when... You know, that's a huge life transition and adjustment. But in terms of the values and skills and dispositions within yourself, having gone through that accident, your recovery, doing the 100-mile race, um, returning to what you love doing, what was your biggest takeaway value as you sit at your desk doing your work? Did something shift within you uh, in regards to your own, you know, your professional career in law? Was there anything that you could apply? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's lots uh, just in terms of my general interaction with people on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, you, you still deal with colleagues and things. And, um, the one thing I find about work relative to sport, so sport, there's very tangible, uh, goals to work towards with work. I find it's a little bit of like a Greek, uh, 
comedy sometimes in that, you know, there's, you finish one challenge, you know, sort of appear, you know, especially as, as in-house counsel. Um, so your work is never done really, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but just having, um, having a long-term view on things. And I think that was part of my recovery. It's something I'd known from, uh, from ultra running, um, just, and also just not, not worrying so much about, um, day-to-day stresses it made a really, really big difference in my interaction with people and just understanding that everybody's dealing with something on a day-to-day basis. So when somebody comes into your office a little bit agitated or frustrated, you know, just trying to understand, like having a bit of empathy for where they're coming from when they bring that into you um, has made a big difference for, for me in terms of just my enjoyment of work. Yeah. And, and, because, and, you know, people are under stress, and especially with the nature of my work. You deal with people in stressful situations. Yeah. And that's my wife and I have a lot of chalkboard walls in our house and we like to write quotes and we keep some quotes up for a longer period of time. Or if we're inspired, we'll take a quote down and put another quote up. And we let our sons see these quotes as well. And we explain them, the quotes to them. But one one of the quotes we put up, and I might not get this perfectly, is um, everybody in life is fighting battles that we know nothing about. Yeah. And it's that idea of have empathy. Even your the people you can't stand to be around, I mean, they are fighting battles that we know nothing about. And I think that's what you're describing. And I wanted to shift over to your TED Talk. Um, you know, we've got a few more minutes here, and there's a couple more things I really want to dive into. And I listened to your TED Talk, and um, I guess – you know, I did a TED talk as well. And I, I, you know, my TED talk was about the addiction and mental illness that my family has gone through. And um, I lost a brother to suicide to um, major depression. I lost another brother to addiction, drug addiction. And I, I was going to talk about something completely different. And it didn't feel in my heart, like it was anything worth sharing. It was just sharing a story. And I decided to share my genuine self and the struggles I had, not personally with mental illness and depression, although I always felt that um, depression was just kind of like closing in on me. I think it was physical activity and sport that always kept me outside of the reach of depression, you know, like deep depression. But I decided to talk about that on the TED stage and it was very difficult and about a week before I thought, screw this, there's no way I'm going to get up and talk about these things and talk about my screwed up family and what I learned. But I think your talk itself was very vulnerable in the way that you talked about, um, specifically to quote you, you said that your accident forced you to confront the demons you had been running from and had used as an excuse and I guess I want to ask you if you're comfortable talking about this. What were those demons? And what specifically was it about your accident that equipped you with the tools to overcome the demons that you referred to in your TED Talk? Yeah, um, that, that's no thanks for sharing your story. That's, um, yeah, making yourself vulnerable um, is actually, it was, it was actually one of them. And it, it's funny, this goes back to your previous question as well, because one of the other big things that changed my work is my, my ability to just tell people how I was doing as well has made a really big difference. Um, in asking for help and telling people I'm, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to answer that question. I can't help you right now, but I, I will be able to. 
And that's something I had to learn in the hospital was asking for help from people. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been, and I've, I always saw myself as incredibly self-reliant and incredibly, um, you know, I've just been very capable for my entire life. Like I've just, you know, just set goals, I've achieved them, I've worked towards things. Um, and, I, and I've seen myself as incredibly uh, independent and all of a sudden to not be independent and something that, you know, when I was in the hospital, like relying on nurses, like complete strangers, basically to like, to wipe my ass, to do like the most basic physical tasks yeah. uh, to help me ease my pain, my emotional pain, physical pain, everything. And, and same with leaning on my friends and family in a huge way through all that. And I don't like to be a burden and I was, and I felt very much like a burden, but I learned, but it was okay. And it was, you know, that, um, that was useful. Yeah. And so I think learning that skill, um, well, one, I realized that it was, it was an illusion. You know, I was not as independent as I thought I was. I was not as self-reliant as I thought I was. Those are things I'd sort of like images myself and built up, but that's not at all who I was. Like I did have an amazing, I'd always relied on. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and I don't think I ever showed enough uh, gratitude to them for that. And I think, you know, I, I use people a lot I, um, to, to get to my, to reach my goals. And I felt like I, not that anybody ever told me this, um, but I felt that I, I realized that I'd done that. And that was really difficult to deal with. Um, so that was one of the, one of the demons for sure that I, I faced through that, throughout that time. And then also, um, you know, what it would be like to not have this, this, as I said, like I was just so reliant on this one outlet, um, and to have lost that outlet was, was really, really difficult for me. And, and to possibly have lost it forever was really difficult. And so learning those new coping mechanisms and learning to, uh, to express myself in new ways was really important and, and very powerful. And the, the Ted talk was, it was really strange because it, it came super early in my recovery, arguably too early. And I didn't, I didn't actually prepare anything. Um, you said it was raw and emotional. That's because I, I, I couldn't actually bring myself to sit down and write anything. And so it was just completely me just pouring my emotions out. And it was my first time presenting talking to anybody about my accident in a public way. Um, so it is about as raw as any TED talk could go. And I'm sure that any of the, they try to get you to, to work with these coaches and, and to prepare your talks. And I'm sure yeah. any coach who watches it would be like, Oh, that was, that was interesting. But it was honest. Yeah. And sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but it was um, when I watched it, it was very raw. It was very emotional. And you resorted to reading from your journal. Um, and you know, that was, you know, you're revealing your, you know, in the hospital bed, you you did this journal writing, and you you are literally reading what you had written in the journal, and and I think what you had done in that moment is an act of courage itself, which doesn't surprise me because to do the work that you had done in professional endurance sport is based is built on courage. It's built on overcoming fear. It's built on resiliency. So even though you had might have been afraid to share in that moment, it's those skills and traits that you had developed for an entire life that gave you the ability to step into that moment and deliver your talk, even though you said hadn't really prepared yeah. for that moment. So I, I feel that 
it was long in the making, your ability to stand up there and be so vulnerable, but that maybe that was just the first time you, you had done it in a different way. Oh, for sure. And it's funny too, because I mean, you know, just be, I think because Ted talk has like a certain cachet to it, you know, and everybody's watched the YouTubes and there's a certain perception of how they should be done. You know, and the, 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 the talks that have millions of views are very polished to a certain degree, but they're also just honest. I find, and you know, if anybody's presenting something with passion and integrity, um, I think people resonate with that. Uh, the other thing that I find interesting about, um, uh, sport it, it, your, your, the result page is actually very honest. Um, anytime you put yourself in the starting line, you put yourself out there, people can see exactly where you're at, the training you've done, like your, your end result, especially with endurance sport tends to be a reflection of the preparation you put into it. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, to a certain degree, it's, you've already put, you've always put yourself out there and it's, uh, the results don't lie at the end. And so I think that, um, the honesty side of it was something that sort of, you know, it was the same with uh, making myself vulnerable. I mean, that's just being honest about how you're feeling and how you're dealing with things in different situations and yeah. learning how to actually express that. Um, it, you know, th- that's a very useful life skill that I, I don't think I'd fully formed prior to the accident and the accident made me have to do that. So I think it, you know, made me a more honest person. Yeah. And when, I guess when I, when I gave my, my Ted talk myself and I'm listening to, to your experience giving your Ted talk and, and like I said, I had doubt a week before. I thought, there's no way I'm going to get up here. I'm just going to go with another talk I've given before. And then I went for a long run and I was like, how could you do this? This this would be an injustice to yourself. Um, <laughs> it would be an injustice to my brothers. Yeah. You know, so I I kind of decided to stick with it. And, and I'm very glad that I did. But it was it was quite hard. And then I give the talk and I, I felt the talk went okay. And then I was relieved that it was done. And then it was quite uh, amazing. Because after the talk, I was the, the last talk of the day. And I was out in the reception hall after. And then suddenly this guy comes up to me, this big dude comes up to me, just taps me on the shoulder and says, uh, well done, and then disappears. And I just said, Oh, thank you very much. And then I received an email the next day from this guy saying, I, I wanted to talk to you in that moment, but he he wanted to thank me for sharing my story because it gave him permission to share his story to me. So he's a, a leading world-renowned researcher that just happened to be at the university where I gave the TED Talk, um, and he was doing a guest lecture for the week. And he said that he was a cocaine addict for years and he almost died. He almost committed suicide. And then he found ultra marathon running and that ultra marathon running changed his life and changed his brain's neurochemistry and gave him hope and, and allowed him to escape the shackles of addiction that had held him back for so many years, you know? And it was in that moment receiving the email where I felt if my talk changed just one person, it's so worth giving it. And it validated my story and my brother's story. So I just wanted to, I'm sure you received emails about your talk from people. Yeah, no, and and not just through the talk, through my entire recovery, because of sort of who, I, I had a bit of a public persona. Um, and I was quite open about sharing a lot of my recovery. So initially, right after my accident, I just removed myself from all social media and just focused on friends and family and on healing. Um, and then 
maybe it was about six, four weeks to six weeks after the accident. Uh, my uh, my wife and I had a, had a discussion about going back online um, and whether or not it was worth sharing and doing it because it was you know it was actually quite nice to <laughs> to, to unplug for a little bit. Yeah. Um, but in sharing my recovery process, I, it, it is amazing how many people reached out to me who suffer like you know they, everybody's dealing with you know as you, you said earlier everybody's dealing with something at, at some stage in their life. Um, whether it's, you know, a loss of a family member or whether it's an injury that's like preventing them from doing a race, whether it's like a catastrophic illness and, uh, and me sharing my recovery and my vulnerability, I think it, it did give permission to people to open up and to, uh, to reach out and hopefully even just give them a small glimpse that, you know, things can be okay in, in a dark moment. And that was powerful. And even if, you know, as you say, like reaching out to one person, it was also, it also helped me. Uh, you know, on a, on a purely selfish yeah. level, it was, it was nice for me. Like I, I need, I, I need to express myself like that. It's just something that is kind of innate in me and it allowed me to express myself and deal with my thoughts and emotions as well. Yeah. And, uh, it just so happens that other people, it resonated with them. Um, and, but ultimately it was me putting my thoughts in the I wasn't doing it for other people. I was doing it for myself. Yeah. Um, and other people have had similar life experiences and, 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 all, and then from there, people also reached out with, with stories that helped me as well. You know, like they gave me advice or experts reached out to me and said, you know, if I can never be of any help and just having that broader community, mm-hmm. uh, it was nice to, to feel that as well. Yeah. And, and again, it goes back to the power of vulnerability and as men and as athletes and, you know, I guess the paradigm is shifting now and especially with mental illness and, you know, one of the stats that I present, and I don't think I mentioned this in part one, but um, by 2030, suicide is going to be the leading cause of death worldwide due to um, social isolation and lack of movement. And it's one of those things that I bring to every talk that I give wherever I go. And, you know, when I'm training teachers, it's like we have such an incredible responsibility as educators to instill upon young people the importance of a social connection and and physical movement. It's more important than math and, math and literacy and all of these things right now. I mean, math and literacy is obviously very important, but it's embedding every opportunity possible for, for people to understand the importance of social connection and and physical movement, you know? So when stories like yours uh, are put out into the world... Um, they're inspiring to others, and and I'm sure that you you haven't even heard from the thousands of people that you have inspired to begin to move. You know, so that should be very rewarding in itself. No, and you know it is. Um, and the other thing that a lot of people don't realize um, is so. Although I, you know, I, I go out and you know run these like long distance races and, you know, and it was relatively fast compared to, to some people. Um, all it is, is, you know, finding your personal challenge, no matter how small that is, you know, um, whether it's so, so take my mom, for example, my mom, when she turned 60, my, my grandmother passed away. So her mom passed away and my mom had put on a little bit of weight, you know, she's, she's active in the garden and things, but she's never been somebody who does sport. And she decided she was going to take up running. 
Um, and so I helped her write a little run program so that she could go out and run a five kilometer race. And for her, that was incredibly daunting. That was her hard rock. That was her, that Everest. was her big challenge. That was her Everest. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, it was. And, um, and it was a massive, she had to deal with a lot of self doubt and because she didn't think that she could do it. And so slowly building her up, you know, especially as a, you know, a six year old woman to suddenly take, take this on. And it was incredibly brave of her to do it too, because, you know, she could have just gone on with her comfortable life. And all of a sudden, you know, even though she was running at a pace that is like just barely faster than walking, she's a runner, you know, and she now like she, she hasn't run that much since then, but she, in her mind, she's a runner. And that's been a really, that was a really powerful shift for her. And another funny moment that I had with her was um, there's a mountain right outside our, our, our Canmore called Hauling Peak. And it's a beautiful, beautiful mountain, but it's, a, it's something I've run up and down in less than an hour. And mom's goal was to go and hike a mountain. She'd never hiked up a mountain. And it's like, once again, it's incredibly symbolic, but also it's look at this thing. And it's like, it's quite intimidating from afar. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that is a legitimate mountain. Um, and so mom and I went out and hiked up Haling and I hadn't, I never really appreciated the fact that there's a whole group of people, like most people out there, you know, their entire goal in the summer is to get themselves fit enough to go out and hike Haling. <laughs> so there's this group of people that I was hiking with mom who were cheering each other on, supporting each other. Like they would hike for, you know, like hundred meters up and then they'd have to sit down and recover and then the next person would pass and they'd cheer each other on. And so there's this whole other, like these people that I've like, you know, basically like pushed off the trails and like running past them. I'm like, Oh, they're, they're out there having like an epic, like they're, they're pushing themselves, challenging themselves in a huge way. And that's incredibly inspiring. So no matter like how small, seemingly small the goal is, it's not, if it's intimidating and daunting for you to take on, it's a worthwhile challenge to try. Yeah. And that's that idea of goal setting and, um, just a quick side note, my wife and I lived in Japan for, um, 10 years and we climbed Mount Fuji the year we were leaving. And, um, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty high. It's pretty intense. But when yeah. we were on our way up, we had passed this old Japanese dude and we living in Japan for 10 years, we spoke enough Japanese to converse with the locals and, and I remember seeing this old guy and he just invited me to sit down and he gave me like a little, piece of uh, like a little Japanese snack. And, and I was able to ask him, like, he must have been 80, 84 or something, you know, and yeah, every year was getting, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, every year had been getting harder. And his, his um, daughter and her husband were able to explain to me that he's really sick, but he really wants to do this year. And he's, he's, this is the slowest he's ever been. And, and I, I was just kind of moved by that. And I remember just continuing on and I never saw him again, but it's it's what you're speaking about these personal challenges and i guess to to close off the show like people have really had an in-depth look at your experience and and uh what you've learned from the experience and the inspiration that you've gained from the experience but the inspiration you've given to others but i guess to close off the show just talk about um i guess what's your biggest hope for you now you know, in, in moving on, um, in moving forward in your life, what, what is your biggest hope? Oh, I mean, that, that, that's, actually, that's an easy answer for me. Um, the, it, it's just to have a, a life full of motion and, and adventure with, you know, people I love. 
like that's just surround myself with good people like that that to me would be would be an ideal life the longer i can stay outside moving um whatever pace that is and wherever that is the happier i am um we didn't really get into this but one of the big things that i, I discovered through my injury and recovery was um and i asked myself um you know if i could never race again but have a life of motion or if i uh, would win the race of my life and never be able to move again, which would I choose? And the choice to me would be really easy. I would choose a life of motion every time. Uh, winning races and being part, like taking part in races is nice and everything, but that's not what it's all about. Really, they're an excuse to be outside and moving, um, and ideally with people I love and in beautiful places. And so that's what I would choose. Yeah, that's that's great. And one of the, you know, just to give you a glimpse into the the things that, I kind of talk about with physical education and health with teachers. And I was in Germany last week delivering a workshop is this idea built on a, a model of it's called meaningful PE. And it's based on many years of research and taking all of the research and taking out the five most important features of physical activity and health. And it's joy and delight. Mm-hmm. It's relevance. It's social uh, connection it's uh, motor competence and it's challenge, yeah. you know, and everything that you're describing and everything in my life has been about those five things, you know. So it's it's so important. People don't understand, especially moving forward, um, the power that physical activity has in, in shaping your life. And, yeah. and that's the message that ultimately I want my listeners, the physical education and health teachers to understand is the power of movement and that it can change your life, you know, and neuro from a neurochemical point of view, it can change, change you and, and give yeah. you more health and happiness. So um, where can people find you on social media? Now, so what's important is uh, the importance of play and all that. So having structured training and, you know, setting goals and working through systems and levels is important and all. And it's cool to do that. And I was really glad to have that. The ones who just enjoyed moving are the ones who are still active and happy with their lives. And uh, I think that's a really important takeaway for people. Um, so movement can be dance. It can be going out for walks. It can just be play. But it's just using your body in some way. Yeah, and it can be yeah. gar- gardening too. I've got a, a researcher friend in Kentucky who's done a whole bunch of research into how people are physically active in life. And um, uh, overwhelming majority of them are most physically active gardening. Yeah, no, I mean it forces you to get down in like funny little motions, and you're also just interacting with the earth, which I I think is really important as well. Just interacting with nature and touching it and feeling it, and I think that's truly important. It allows you to discover the world a little bit. And gardening also forces you to plan ahead and nurture something so you like it all it, it really does touch in all those areas of life for sure yeah so um, but yeah you're asking about uh, you're asking uh, where people can find me yes um so I, I have a website it's called alpinebureau.com yeah and um on there it has links to all, all my my other social media but my uh my instagram is adamo1979 and my twitter is campbell adamson so yeah, thanks for those. I'm going to include the your um, social media links in the podcast notes, and uh, I'll release part one uh, next week, and then part two the week after. And I want to genuinely thank you for your for your time, Adam. It's been amazing to get to know you and to um, better understand 
you and your story and uh, how meaningful it is. Um, no, thank you so much for, for the great questions. It was a really interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been great. So uh, again, Adam, thanks for um, being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm going to close off the show and then just stay on the line. Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this two-part series with Adam Campbell. And if Adam's story has meant something to you, and I'm sure that it has, it's such an amazing journey uh, that he shared over the two-part series. Um, if it's meant something to you, reach out to him on Twitter or Instagram or on his website and uh, let him know what the podcast meant to you, what hearing his story meant to you, how it inspired you, what it left you thinking about in regards to your own personal and professional pursuits in life. And uh, head on over to YouTube to check out the mini documentary In Constant Motion. Uh, share the, the documentary with your students or with the athletes that you coach or with other teachers or anybody in your life who you think could benefit from using a little um, jolt of inspiration. So once again, everybody, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you listening to any episode that you can. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.